0: If you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Charlie and Richard will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation, chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 and our series of seven letters for seven churches that we're going to look at. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Go all the way to the end of your Bibles and turn left. All right, starting in verse 1, we read, To the angel of the church of Ephesus writes, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is the midst of the paradise of God. The title of my study this morning is The Loveless Church. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in this place this morning, knowing, Lord God, that you're in this place, ready to teach our hearts, instruct our lives as to how, Lord, we might better know you and serve you and honor you with our lives. We pray your blessing upon our time together, Lord. We pray if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to come into saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, that they would have their eyes open and they would see their need to have that relationship with you. And they would see their need to have their sin forgiven, and they would come to you this morning. So we thank you for this time. We give it to you. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, today we begin a series called Seven Letters for Seven Churches, looking at the seven letters written to the seven different churches as found in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. I guess in our day and age we might call it seven emails to seven churches. Now, do you know that you can actually now send an email to God? I, I, I read this, a recently read that an Israeli internet company, AIS.com, has announced that they will take email prayers to the rest, rest, Western Wall in Jerusalem. Customarily, people, you know, they write their, their prayers on the little piece of paper, and they stick it in the cracks of the wall. Now, for a suggested donation of $18, they'll print up your email and place it in the cracks of the wall. $18, you can send an email to God. Now, it's free to talk to him any time, but, but they're charging that service for you. You know, I always like the story about the couple from Minneapolis. You know, they decided to go to Florida to thought during a particular icy winter. They planned to stay at the same hotel where they spent their honeymoon uh, 20 years earlier. Well, because of the hectic schedule, it was difficult to coordinate their travel schedule. So the husband left Minnesota and flew to Florida on Thursday, and his wife was going to follow the following day. While well, the husband checked into the hotel, there was a computer in his room, so he decided to send his, uh, his email to his wife. However, he accidentally sent out, you know, left out one of the letters in her email address and re- without realizing the error, sent the email to the wrong person. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, a widow just returned from her husband's funeral. He was a minister who was called home to glory following a heart attack. The widow decided to check her email, expecting messages from relatives and friends. After reading her first message, she screamed and fainted. The widow's son rushed into the room, found his mother on the floor, and saw the computer screen, which read, To my loving wife, I've arrived. I know you're surprised to hear from me. They have computers here now, and you are allowed to send emails to your loved ones. I've just arrived and have been checked in. I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is an uneventful one, as mine was. P.S. Sure is hot down here. <laughs> you know, sometimes our emails can get sent to the wrong person. Sometimes we get those emails that are just not meant for us. But when Jesus sends an email, when he sends a letter, it's the right to the right people with the right words at just the right Time. And that's why I feel God has led us to, to look at Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches. Powerful letters burning with a sense of urgency to get into our hearts, to get into our lives. And their messages are as timely and vital today as when they were first written almost two thousand years ago. Because really they reveal the heart of the Lord for his church. Now, in order for us to understand these letters, we must understand the divine outline that God has given to us in the book of Revelation, found in chapter 1, verse 19. The apostle John is instructed there to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which uh, will take place after this. And in chapter 1, John presented the things which, which, which he had seen. Specifically, he saw the Lord. Chapters two and chapters three write the things which are, the things which are are the, the church age, the time of Christ's resurrection to the rapture of the church. And finally the things that will take place after this is chapters four through twenty two of the Book of Revelation of the Lord's program, how the end of the age will all play out. So you have a divine outline, but we're just looking for our series that just chapters two and three, the things which are, which are the churches, which are the church age. In fact, John is instructed in chapter 1, verse 7, to write what you see right in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so we have seven letters for seven churches for us to study. Now, out of the seven churches that John is instructed to write to, Jesus has something to say good about all of them except for one. The church of Laodicea, the, the uh, lukewarm church. Jesus doesn't have anything good to say about that church, and, and we'll get to that we'll save that one for last. But understand there's four ways to look at and understand the messages given to the churches. Number one, they're applied historically. In other words, they were written to actual historical churches. There there really was a church of Ephesus and a church of Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and, and so on. In fact, uh, though it says that these seven churches are in Asia, uh, we know that things have been divided up geographically since then, and so now they're in the area we know as Western Turkey. They're in fact given to us in the order of the old Roman postal route, in which uh, you know letters would be delivered: Ephesus first, then Smyrna, then Pergamos, and so on. So, if you're sending a letter, you know, in those days of the Roman Empire, the carrier would actually deliver in that order of these seven churches here. Now the second way we can understand the letters for the church is to apply these letters prophetically. And, uh, and you can see we we have a a picture of a complete church age, starting with the church of Ephesus. The early church, it was, you know, losing its grip. They were leaving their first love. Then we moved to the church of Smyrna to speak of the church age that went under the intense persecution with with as many as six million uh, believers being martyred for their faith. Then the Church Age, we move into Pergamos and Thyatira, and that's when the pagan idolatry, you know, kind of crept into the church in a time historically known as the Dark Ages. Then we look at the Church of Sardis, and that moved on in church history when the Protestant Reformation took place. And then we end up with two streams of the Last Days Church: the Church of Laodicea, uh, you know, the lukewarm church, and the Church of Philadelphia, the, the awakened, the, the revived, the, the little strength church, and the coming back to life. Now, what is interesting to me is that when John was giving us these words, he was speaking of the future. But now with 2,000 years under our belts, we are looking backwards and we see each one of these church ages took place exactly as God's word said it was. Because when God speaks about the future, it's not a stretch for him. God can speak about the future with as much accuracy as we can speak about the past. Even more so because, you know, we, we forget the past, which is probably good at some point. Number three... The letters to the churches can be applied practically. They can be applied practically. What they teach us, they teach us about church life. About church life, our priorities, our focus as a church. You know, today we're living in a time where people are re-envisioning what the church is. And they all, we need to reinvent the church. Well, I agree the church needs to be relevant to the culture we're living in. I disagree that we have to reinvent the church. Of course, we need to adapt to the times in which we're living, you know, languages change, musical styles change, design changes. You know, if we're living in another country, for example, I would not expect me, those around me to, to understand English. And so I'd have to speak in, in the language or have an interpreter. I'd want to communicate effectively. Uh, you know, having said that, there's certain things about the church that must never change, you know, uh, fixed principles that must remain exactly where, where they are. And we see those principles laid out in the seven letters for the seven churches. Almost every problem, difficulty, and challenges that are facing the church today are addressed in these seven letters. Finally, number four, they are applied personally. They're applied personally. In other words, we get a good look at ourselves in the mirror. When you look at Jesus' words to the seven churches, you see that it speaks to us personally as individual Christians. It causes us to examine our lives and and see where we need to be with the Lord. Because there's clear lessons from the Lord to each each of these churches that we can look at and apply to our lives and ask ourselves the question, am I like one of these people? Am Am I like a member of one of these churches? Because Jesus ended up, each one of these letters, with the words, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear. So they are personal to us. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things in, in our, this letter this morning. We're going to see, number one, a commendation. Number two, a criticism. and Number three, a correction. Number one, a commendation. Let's read now the words of Jesus to the first of the seven churches, Revelation 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lamps lampstands. Let's stop there for a moment to point out that Jesus is speaking to the representatives of the churches there. Over in chapter 1, the seven stars are identified as the seven messengers of the church. Some translators put it angels, um, you, know, uh, you know, that they were addressing an angel representing the church. But if you take that word angel literally, which means messenger, uh, he was perhaps speaking to the pastors of each one of these churches. And I lean towards that uh, understanding of it. I believe he's speaking to pastors. And then the churches are represented by the lampstands. So he's speaking to the leaders and the churches. It says to the church of Ephesus, verse 2. Now, Ephesus, then I had a large population uh, of the seven cities spoken to. They were the largest, estimated around a quarter of a million people. It was the center of business, of commerce, of, of uh, uh, education and religion. So it makes sense that they'd start there in Ephesus. As well as Ephesus actually had an actual church there that was originally pastored by the Apostle Paul. Remember, Paul went into Ephesus and and preached the gospel and a riot broke out, as most always took place whenever Paul would go into the city to preach the gospel. They worshiped this goddess called Diana, and because the people made a lot of money selling images of Diana, they just freaked out because people were turning from Diana to Jesus. It was bad for business. Despite that, Paul established a congregation in the city known for its pagan idolatry. So this was an actual church pastored initially by Paul. Later, it was pastored by the Apostle John. I mean, could you imagine attending a church that was first pastored by Paul, then John? Amazing. All you need is Ringo and, and George, and it would be great. But... Now, Jesus starts off his letter to this church in Ephesus with the words of commendation, has some words of criticism, and closes with words of correction. That's always a good pattern to follow if you ever have to correct someone. If there is someone you have to go to, man, start off, hey, man, you're doing a good job. You know, I really appreciate what you're doing, but, but, hey, you know what, there's this area over here, and, and maybe you can help over there, you know. Rather than saying, man, you're really messing up. You need to fix this, you know. yeah, Because, you know, it kind of, you know, say something nice about them first. Say something nice about what they're doing. So what if I can't find anything nice? Well, make something up. You're human today. It's great. I'm glad you're human today. You know, way to go. But Jesus starts off with a commendation, the third Ephesus, for many things that they were doing right. Look at verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name'sake and have not become weary. Man, what you read right off the bat is they were a very active church. And that's very commendable. I mean, they were uh, they weren't just workers. They were hard workers. They gave their very best for the Lord. And so the Lord is saying, man, good job. Way to go. In fact, that word for labor there could also be translated to the point of exhaustion. I mean, they're working themselves to the bone. They're sacrificing themselves to, to the things of God. Patiently going through trials, patiently, you know, doing the things for the Lord. And that's certainly commendable. And it, it doesn't go unnoticed by, by the Lord. And the same thing is true here this morning. I know we have many people involved in the ministries here at this church and, and have been over quite quite a few years here. And and I know for as a pastor, I'm not always able to go to each one and say, Man, thank you for the job you do. Man, you're doing a great job. But know that Jesus sees it. And I see it and I recognize it. And I say as Jesus says, Thank you. So not only was this church a hard working church, but they were also a discerning church. Again, verse two, he says, I know that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. That's kind of a funny thing, because we have churches today where people call themselves apostles in the church. You know, I'm an apostle so-and-so, and and I'm apostle so-and-so, and and they actually use that title. Yet one of the requirements to be called an apostle, according to Scripture, was you had to be an actual eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So unless you're very, very old, I, I don't see it, but... So, Jesus is saying, Good job. He says, You've rooted out liars. So, this church was discerning. You know, and, and, you know, they were careful in how we need to follow their examples, especially in the times in which we are living in today. Because the Bible tells us in the last days that God wanted us that there'd be an increase of false teaching, of false prophets within the churches. And we see that today. And the problem is most false teachers are very dangerous in that they teach just a partial truth. And they mix that truth with error and it confuses many believers because what they say is the truth. Oh, this is good. Then they add that lie to it. And it confuses people and people start believing the lie. We're told in 1 John that we're to reject those that deny Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. See, to deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is to deny really the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, is to deny the Trinity. And look at the churches that are out there that are doing that today. The Jehovah Witnesses, the Christian scientists, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the one that's Pentecostals, Unitarian Universalists, Islam, the same thing. Outright apostate liars who deny the deity of Jesus Christ that are out there today. They deny that He's a creator, deny His blood atonement, deny His virgin birth, even mock the idea of His second coming. Listen. The Bible says we can expect that in the last days. We need to be aware of that happening around us. Anticipate that. In fact, in writing to this church in Ephesus, Paul the apostle writes in Ephesians four fourteen that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of man and the cunning craftiness of the deceitful plotting. Don't let that get to you. You don't go down that path. And this Ephesian church, they listened. They obeyed. They were discerning. They were careful. And we need to be that way. Not always assume that those who claim to be God's messengers are indeed from him. Then verse 3 says, You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So Jesus is saying, look, you guys are doing great. Man, you stayed focused. You've worked hard in ministry. You've been patient. You've rooted out deceivers. You've hung in there. You've not given up. Way to go church. And I can picture them getting the letter. You know, and they unscroll it. Oh, yeah, you've done this. or Oh, that's pretty good. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. And then they read, nevertheless. Ooh, nevertheless. Oh, I don't like nevertheless. Nevertheless. We're doing so good. Well, that brings us to point number two of criticism. Look at verse four. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The main problem. Main thing that changed the relationship that they once held with them, it was gone. Yeah, other things have, have come in the way. You've left your first love, he says. Now, here's the big question of the day, personally. Have we left our first love relationship with Jesus? Has our work overtaken our worship of Jesus? Have we become weary? Now That's a question that we can only answer individually ourselves, but we know that Jesus sees all of that, and I believe we all know whether or not we have left our first love or not. And what this is actually saying, though, is that when you've left your first love, or better translation would be, you no longer love me as you did at first. See, not only had the Christians in the church of Ephesus lost their first love for Jesus, they probably also lost some of that love they had one for another. Some of the care they had one for another. Some of the love they had for the lost, for, for the unbelievers. See, all three of these things are all tied in together. Yes, they worked very hard in the church. They believed the word of God and held firmly to their faith. But sadly... They had lost the heart of their faith. They, they lost that love for Jesus. And the kind of thing, you know, can happen in a marriage as well for those of you that are married. Guys, husbands, let me ask you this question. Do you remember when you first started dating your wife? Man, you wanted to make the best impression possible on her. Man, you were Mr. Manners, right, man? When you, when you took her to the restaurant, you, op- you, know, you, you, you opened the door to get her out of the car. You got her to the table. You held the door opener in, in the restaurant. You held a chair for her. You, you put it in. Use your best, best mannered manners because you wanted to do everything right. Maybe for no special occasion at all, you just brought her some flowers. You just called to say, I love you. But now that she's committed to be your wife, it's been a few years. You still take her out to dinner. But you chose a finer restaurant, one that you're only going to have to get out of your car. Just drive up to, and they hand you the food right through the window. Huh, look, I've taken you out to dinner. You still call her from work, but not to say, I love you, to say, so what's for dinner? (laughs) Well, as they say, maybe the honeymoon is over. You know, that can happen in our relationship with God as well. We can lose that fervor, that commitment, that passion, that, that romance, if you will, in our relationship with God. And do you remember when you first came to Christ and you knew that your sin was forgiven? When all those walls of anger and bitterness that you held up for so long came crumbling down? when that aching void that was inside your heart was finally filled with the presence of God, when, when, when it was so exciting to open God's Word and to hear the truth for the very first time, and you understood what the Bible was saying. Well, then there was worship. Man, you come in and the songs, man, they just weren't songs. These are praise songs that, that touched your heart. And for many of us, this just brought tears to your, to your heart, to your eyes, when you think, oh, how great God is. And you were excited about telling uh, about the Lord, telling people about the Lord, and you just had to tell other people what God has done in your life. Yeah, you didn't have all the answers, but that didn't stop the zeal that you had. You were excited. And many times because of your zeal, you man, you were the wanting to pray in the restaurants. Oh, let me pray for our food, you know, and thank you for this food, God, and you stand up on the table, you know, maybe and oh Lord, and thank you for, for, for my faith in you. Lord, if there's anybody here that, that needs to be saved, Lord, in this restaurant, they can be born again, just raise your hand. Maybe you're all excited about that. Maybe you didn't go that far, but my point is, does that stir any memories in your heart? To you go, yeah, I, I, I do kind of remember that. Is that how things are for you today, or things change a little bit? You still pray, even for your meals, but it's something that you don't do as often. Just maybe a quick prayer, and you think, you know, maybe you got to the point where, we're all praying for our food it isn't that important. God knows my heart, or... Even worse yet, you don't even know what you're praying when you're praying. You know, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. You know, let's eat, you know. How about when it comes to the things of the, of the Bible study, you know? Is it still a part of your life, or do you, do you, you know, are you just kind of reading your Bible sporadically? You don't feel the need to actually take your Bible with you to, to work or, or to school, you know? You don't want to be perceived as some fanatic or anything like that. Have things changed a little bit when coming to church? You know, you're in church most of the time, but then, you know, if something comes up, you know, something arises, you may skip. It's not that big big of a deal. God will understand. Sharing your faith, you know, well, you know, it's not like it used to be. Not as, as aggressive as you once were. Is it possible that you've left your first love? Then you're facing the same situation the Ephesian church did. And, and the solution is the same for you and for me, is, is what Jesus says. And that brings us to point number three, the correction. Look at verse five. Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's the correction. Here's the way the Lord wants us to change. You might call it the three R's to recovery. Remember, repent, and return. Number one, remember. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Now, this is important. This is a serious matter. Understanding leaving your first love means you've fallen away. Now, it's not fallen away where you're out, you know, in your old life completely, but there is a part that you've fallen away. Not necessarily the most radical of sins, but it is the root of most, if not all. David, you know, he's a, a great example of this. David was a king of Israel, you know, the man after God's own heart. The psalmist of the Scriptures You know, you you might say, and it was David who wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Just beautiful words, beautiful songs, a a heart towards God. Same David who faced a nine-foot-six Philistine giant named Goliath. He brought him down with a stone and, and, and a sling, and it became the hero of Israel. David ascends to the throne. Saul is gone, and all is right. David rules the land loved by his people, the greatest king really, uh, uh, apart from Jesus, to rule Israel, ruling righteously, worshipping the Lord, a poet, a musician, a warrior, a king. A a man who loved God. But he's also a man known as a murderer and as an adulterer. How can he fall so horribly? It wasn't overnight. There was a path to his failure. See, you know, after he was made king, some 20 years had passed. And he sort of put it on cruise control. I've been a Christian for a while, you know. I'm just kind of cruising now things are going good. David kind of kicked back and wasn't being as active as he once was. In fact, the Bible says that when the time had come for the kings to go out to battle, David stayed on his rooftop instead of going out to battle. So he's taking a little time off, not only from battle, but apparently from God as well. And he sees this beautiful woman bathing herself, ironically named Bath. Sheba, you know, I don't know how that works out. But David has her brought up into his chambers after he looks at her lustfully, has sex with her, she gets pregnant. And instead of confessing his sin before God, David tries to cover it up, brings her husband Uriah in, you know, in from battle, says, you need to go sleep with your wife. He doesn't do that. He's honoring the king and his other men. And, and, and so to make a long story short, David has Uriah killed. He ends up marrying Bathsheba thinking he had effectively covered up his sin. And then later on, he's nailed by Nathan, the prophet. How do you go from worshiping God in the wilderness to murdering a man and taking his wife? He left that first love relationship. And, and, and that's how, and this was the mere result of it. What started out was just staying home instead of going off to war. Instead of where he should have been, David ended up a murderer and, 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 and with death and deception and sadness. Listen, if you're not where you should be with the Lord, Maybe you're staying home and staying away from other believers that can help help hold you accountable. Not in God's Word. You're you're not in a place. It's a dangerous path to go down. Because when we stop progressing spiritually, then you and I are just a train wreck waiting to happen. And we need to recognize that within each one of us, we have that propensity. We have that, that tendency to go astray, to get our eyes off of the Lord and get our focus off of Him. So Jesus says, remember, remember where you have fallen. In other words, if you have fallen, the first step is to re-experience in your mind that sense of joy and wonder and closeness to the Lord when you first gave your life to Him. Remember those times when you sensed that inner support and strength from the Lord when you were going through struggles. And then repent. Repent, he says, verse 5. It means to change your mind, change your life, stop the direction you're going and turn to go the other way. See, it's not important just to know what to do. You need to do it. Change your mind. Move away from what's tempting you to go down that path. Repent of any pride. Repent of any position or reputation and replace it with that wonder and that awe of Jesus. You know, it can be a very humbling thing to have to admit that our love for Jesus has grown cold. It can be tough. Yet if we are to come back into that intimacy with our Lord, we have to admit our need. As in the church of Ephesus, things on the outside may look good, but on the inside, they were known with little love and passion left. And we need to realize the working of God without love for God is worthless. And we need to repent of it and put Jesus back into the center of our lives and all that we say and all that we do. Admit that we need a fresh touch from the Lord. Because He longs to touch us afresh. He longs for us to continue to enjoy that intimate relationship with Him. So allow the joy of your salvation and your amazement over God's love to permeate everything you say and do. Remember, repent, and then return, number three. Do your first works. What were your first works? So we looked at them briefly already. Man, you, you read your Bible with eagerness. You couldn't get a, a, enough of it. You longed to find out what the Word of God said. You prayed about everything and everywhere. You looked for God's hand in everything you did. You gave Him praise for everything He was doing. You responded to the hurts and the needs of people around you. You, you had with compassion and love. And you didn't look at it as an imposition. You looked at the needs of others more than yourself. Maybe even took opportunities to share your faith. Actually initiate conversations with people that weren't Christians. Above all that, we had to have praise in our heart for God. You love to sing praises to His name and think about His grace to you. Do that again and watch what will happen, He says. And you do that for one week. Go back and do the things you used to do and, and watch how that flame will be rekindled and how it will grow and it will burn like it once did. This last week I was going through some old files on my computer and, and I I had kept a journal for many years on my, my computer. And I looked back to July of 1995. And I started reading this, this entry. It was four years before I actually started pastoring, and I just returned from a missions trip in Russia. And it was a real eye-opening thing for me to read this because it, it, it reminded me of what was going on in my life almost 21 years ago, and I'll read it to you. I wrote, Today is Monday, July 31st, 1995, and much has gone on since Russia. I'm now going to be teaching a home study in Silver Lake's community. It's amazing what God is doing and has done. I feel like I'm just holding on because of how fast everything is happening. I love it. I'll be teaching tonight at the prison ministry, James 1. Then I'll be teaching Saturday at the home study. And then I'll be teaching the following Thursday at Mike Morris' home study. Then I'll be teaching at Friday at Silver Lakes High School. Then a week after that, I'll be teaching at the New Foundations of the Faith class at church, Baptism and Trinity. I love it. I pray that God will bless it. I feel he has called me, but I want to be able to share as well as Pastor Dennis shares. I pray that God will bless all of the studies. I read that I thought, whoa. I see a little bit how I have fallen. I still go, oh, man, the excitement of having all these opportunities to teach. And it reminded me how excited I was that God was using me in the teaching ministry. And it made me me realize what a blessing it is to be doing what I'm doing. and, And it got me excited again to see all that God has done. That's what it means to remember and go back and gain that excitement again for the things of God. Do your first works. Go back and do those first works. Now let's take this back to the marriage analogy again for a moment. Let's say you're having problems in your marriage. Go back and do what you did when you first were married. Well, you know, you know, we used to do a lot of things together. We spent time together. Okay, do that again. You no, know, when I saw my wife, I would, I would tell her she was beautiful and I would bring her flowers or just tell her I love her without wanting anything in return. Have you done that lately? Do that again. You no, know, I used to tell my husband what a great guy he was and how much I appreciate him. Okay, he still needs to hear that. Go back and do those things again. I used to let my husband watch football on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. Go back and let him do that again, okay? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) You know, they need to hear, I love you. Go back and do that again. But but I don't feel that anymore. Who cares if you feel it? Just do it. Do romantic things and a romance will return. Don't wait for the emotions because emotions come and go. So the commendation, you're doing great as a church. The criticism, you left your first love. The correction, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. But then Jesus, Jesus adds this warning in verse 5. He says, do this or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Folks, we need to pay attention to this warning here. As I said when we began, the lampstand is a symbol of the church. This is a reminder that no single church has a guarantee that it will continue on indefinitely. Listen, the church as a whole, its going gonna, it's gonna, it will always march on. Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. No one have, is ever going to stop the church as, as try as they may. But individual congregations may have a lifespan. I have seen churches where they were once filled with people hungry for the word of God, and now they sit empty. Years ago, we took a team down to, to Hurricane Katrina to, to help out there, and, and, and we stayed at this huge church that was down there, it probably holds, I don't know, maybe a thousand people in the church. Just had a handful of people going to that church. Just a handful. Drive around down there, and there's churches that are empty, uh, places that were once where, where God used, was worshiped, and now church buildings are sitting practically empty. How sad that is. But here's the warning. If a church neglects God's word, if a church stops loving Jesus as they did at first and they begin to compromise, then a church can come to the point where it's no longer a light in the community. It can come to the point where it's no longer making an impact in the lives of, of its people. It, it, it's no longer what it was. In some cases, the churches, they, they start looking at each other, they start splitting, and, 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 and it's gone. The church closes. Someone else buys it. you know. But God will always raise up another church and another church, and He always will. But here's the thing. We don't want to lose our place. We don't want to lose that light that we have. Because if you lose your love, it's only a matter of time until you lose that light. And this is something we all need to take personally as well. Because we can be a Christian and not an effective one. Because of compromise, because of sin, because of leaving our first love. And you're no longer radiating, that, radiating that, that light of Jesus' love like you once were. Here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt of it has lost its flavor. Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Matthew five, uh, thirteen through 15 What good is unsalty salt? It's no good at all. What good is uncarbonated soda? It's it's not good. Or decaf coffee. Why? Why? I drink it because my doctor tells me I should, but it's just warm brown water. That's all it is. I think there's some uncarbonated Christians out there, some decaf disciples. Have you lost your light? Have you blown your testimony because you've lost your first love and you have returned to sin? Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Jesus put it this way, Matthew five, sixteen, let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Look now at verse six as Jesus has one more commendation to them. He says, But this you have that you hate the deeds of Nic- Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, why didn't he mention that earlier when he commended them on the earlier things? Well, the answer is here was where the Ephesian church needed to begin. This is their starting point. See, their passion was not all gone yet. Here was the one thing they still retained, something of their first love, and is that they hated the practice of the Nicolaitans. See, we're to love what God loves, and we're to hate what God hates. And he hates sin, and he also hates pride, and he hates self-elevation, and he hates self-exaltation. And from what we know of church history, uh, these were all the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, there's a lot of controversy over who these Nicolaitans were, but from what we can tell, this is a group linked to the Christian faith with all sorts of loose sexual practices. They believe you could be a Christian, but your sex life could still reflect out of the world. They tied that to false religiosity, you know, piety, uh, powering o- over the people, you know, uh, They claim they have special position and power with God, but they live like the devil. Jesus said to this church, man, you did good. Retain your hatred of such practices. That's a mark of your first love still remaining. You hate the things that I hate. Now start there and continue to abhor such practices, but then go back and do the rest of the things again. Finally, verse 7, the Lord uh, contains our Lord's appeal to the church and the promise he makes to it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Tree of life, you remember, was in the Garden of Eden at the beginning. It was the tree that Adam and Eve were free to partake of until they sinned. After that, they were excluded from the garden. God did not want them to eat of the tree of life, living in that sinful state, corrupted bodies forever. Now, we know that the phrase appears again in chapter 22 in the book of Revelation. And that there we see a new heaven and a new earth and the tree of life in the midst of the city. It's 12 fruits, one for each month, and, the, and its food is for the, for the people of the city. You might call it the fruit of the month club that is there, if you like. But, but really, our Lord Jesus himself is that tree of life. I think it's just a symbol of Jesus. And if our thoughts are on him, if we're drawing our strength from him, if we're praying to him, Taking the strength that he offers, we will find ourselves internally strengthened to meet the pressures and the battles that we're facing in our world today. That's what Jesus is saying here. Feed upon the tree of life. Listen to what he says. Obey, and we'll soon find our spiritual life flourishing, and we're going to go strong in in the pressures and the struggles that come away. That is the tree of life. Finally, as we close, there's no greater example of love in the entire world than the love God showed for us by sending His Son to die in a place on a different tree called the cross. No greater demonstration of the love than the love of Jesus where He laid down His life for us. As He said, greater love hath no man than He laid down His life for His friends, and He did that. He laid down his body upon that cross. He took the, the spikes pounded into his hands and feet, the pressing of the crown of thorns on his forehead, his back being ripped open from a whip. And there, and there, he died out of love for us, so we could come into this relationship with God. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ this morning, I pray that you give it, you turn from your sin and, and turn to Him this morning. But perhaps you've you've, you've lost that first love relationship with the Lord, as we close, pray and ask the Lord, you know, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. And I want to get back into that first love relationship with you. And he will do that. He will answer that prayer. And God will bless you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the promise. Lord, that if we cry out to you, Lord, Lord, that you would fill us. That you would empower us. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, I pray, for any of us here, Lord, that have lost that first love relationship. Lord, we know in our hearts where we stand before you. No one else needs to know, just between you and our hearts. And Father, if we have, Lord, we want to confess to you this morning. We want to repent from it to say we're sorry for not living that first love relationship we once had with you. Lord, we want to turn from it and remember, Lord, the joy it was to first come into that relationship with you. And now we want to walk in them, Lord. Fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit to walk in your ways, to honor you with our entire lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll stand we'll do one last song together.